Our gospel reading shows Jesus restoring the only son of a widow back to life. But we need to consider what happened just one day earlier. Jesus was invited by a Roman centurion to come to his home and heal a very valuable, beloved servant. Jesus went, and just outside of the house, the centurion left to approach Jesus, realized that under Jewish ritual laws of impurity, he could not impose on Jesus to enter a Gentile's house and risk becoming unclean. And he said to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, do those words sound vaguely familiar? Yeah, we use them during the Mass, don't we? When do we say them before, during the Mass? Just before we receive the holy gifts? Yeah. Jesus was utterly amazed at this Roman's display of faith, and the servant was healed immediately. The following day, Jesus, his disciples, and a great crowd of miracle junkies went with them to the city of Nain. Today, it's a very small village, and the name Nain means pleasant or delightful. As Jesus entered the gate of the city, a funeral procession was coming out. Those carrying the corpse of a dead man, the dead man's mother, and a crowd of mourners. He was the resurrection and the life, met another victim of death. He was the light of the world, confronted the darkness of death. The dead man, we are told, was the only son of his mother, a widow. And this is important. At that time, a woman who was widowed was to be taken care of by her son. When the son died, so did that woman's livelihood, her home and her support. From the moment her son's body was going to be laid in that tomb, she became destitute. One of the Anawim, the poorest of the poor, totally dependent on charity to survive. Once the period of mourning ended, her life was going to become impossibly difficult. And she knew it. The mourners knew it. Most importantly, Jesus knew it. We are told that when the Lord saw her, he was moved with pity for her and said to her, do not weep. Now, it's unlikely that this woman knew Jesus other than perhaps a few rumors flying around about him. So what was it like for her to see this stranger stop her son's funeral procession, and for him to tell her, do not weep, when her life was literally unraveling, and she had absolutely no control over the events that were engulfing her. The Lord touched the coffin. The bearers stopped. But why did Jesus touch the coffin? 
Just one day earlier, he healed the Roman centurion's servant with a mere word. So why not just say a word, Jesus, and restore that dead man back to life? St. Cyril of Alexandria, patriarch of Alexandria from 412 till his death in 444, asked the same question in a sermon. And his answer makes perfect sense. The divine nature and the human nature in Christ are so integrated that each is at the service of the other. So that as St. Cyril says, the flesh of Christ also has the power of giving life and annihilates the influence of death and corruption because it is the flesh of the word who gives life to all. Because Jesus is God, the flesh of the word, both the human and the divine in him are placed at the service of love for mankind. And Jesus said, young man, I tell you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to do what? Speak. What would that man's mother Jesus' disciples, the young man newly resuscitated, the crowd of miracle seekers and the crowd of mourners have thought, what would they have thought? All we are told is that fear seized them all. The gospel uses the Greek word phobos for fear. Now, phobos can certainly mean to be terrified, to be frightened, but it can also mean reverent fear, to be astonished, to be amazed. And it can mean all those intense, visceral, interior responses all going on at the same time. Talk about being overwhelmed. What I find so intriguing is not that the dead man was restored to life, but that seemingly simple statement, and Jesus did what? Like the prophet Elijah earlier, he gave him to his mother. Gave him to his mother. It's packed with meaning. Life does not belong to us. It belongs to God. And because life belongs to God, the gift of life should elicit from us a profound respect and the desire to protect and nurture it from conception until death. Life should elicit from us vigilance when we see the efforts on the part of the state to enact laws that, on appearance, wish to humanely end suffering, but by terminating the lives of un the unwanted in the womb. Children with birth defects, the elderly, the terminally ill, the physically and the mentally handicapped. There's a professor going around. His name is Dr. Peter Singer. He argues, point blank rage, all, all infants who are handicapped should be destroyed. And he has a following. Such laws swallowed by a gullible public that is often too trusting of government will quickly evolve into legal requirements. 
in the act of giving life of that young man back to his mother, we are reminded by he who is God, we are the stewards of life, not its masters. As is often the case with such miracles, we never learn what the young man did with the rest of his restored life. We do not know what impact the miracle had on the crowds, both those following Jesus and those in the funeral procession. But the real issue is, having heard the gospel, what impact does it have on us tonight, our relationship with Jesus, our perception of life? How well do we cherish that gift? 